0: Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm gonna be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. Thanks for tuning in. Today's guest is Eddie Perfect. Yep, it's his real name. Perfect by name, down to earth by nature. He's one of Australia's most respected and prolific artistic talents. His most recent work as composer of Beetlejuice, the musical, snared him a nomination for best original score at the 2019 Tony Awards. His television acting credits include a series regular role of Mick in Ten's iconic offspring and Kath and Kim. He's won multiple awards for his work both as a performer and writer, including Helpman and Green Room Awards. His credits include Global Creatures, Strictly Ballroom, the musical, King Kong on Broadway, Keating, the musical, and Shane Warne, the musical. Simply, he's a one of a kind in this country. Eddie's also been a regular fixture on the Australian comedy circuit. His solo shows, Angry Eddie, Drink Pepsi Bitch, Misanthropology and Songs from the Middle. When my wife Kate, as in Kate Zabrano, came home from working with Eddie on South Pacific with Opera Australia, she said, "This bloke has such a sharp mind and intellect. I'm literally winded by the speed that he gets there before everyone else." On that note, please welcome to the blank canvas Eddie Perfect. Eddie perfect. Thanks for coming in. Pleasure Lee. Wow. How does a bloke from Mentone in the suburbs in Melbourne wind up on Broadway writing, composing, creating two massive musicals?
1: Well, the short answer to that is I don't know the answer to that exactly, except that, you know, nothing is really that planned. I had a like, you know, a dream that I wanted to be a Broadway composer, but of course, I had absolutely no idea how to go about doing that and I um, I started as a visual artist and I left that and I went and studied opera and then I didn't like that atmosphere, even though I learned a lot about classical music. I left to go and be a performer in musical theatre and I studied in Perth at the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts and when I was there, I mean, I'd always been interested in music and I'd always played music from here Um And I started writing songs for theatre while I was there. There was a lot of opportunities to do that. And I remember in my third and final year at WAPA, um, instead of performing in one of the performance slots, I asked if I could workshop a piece that I'd written or that I was writing in sort of collaboration based off the stories of a lot of the students in first year with the first year students. And it was a cycle of songs called Up and it was really kind of about um, the precipice between sort of like being a young person and being an adult and, you know, that kind of like taking off, taking flight idea. And it was just me at a piano with 18 students and it went for about 50 minutes and that was what I did. And I remember very much the experience of that was like, oh, this feels every bit as good if not better than performing. And from that point on, I think it kind of (laughs) – My writing has just done – it's kind of gone in an upwards direction and and performing has sort of diminishing returns for me to the point where, like, I find it hard to find the joy in performing. I think maybe because I've worked with so many amazing performers and it's such a discipline, it's such a muscle that I'm quite happy standing at the back of the theatre. So I just kept writing for the theatre. That included writing for myself just because that was economically viable. And then I wrote my first musical, which was Shane Warne, The Musical – Um, but that was very much creating in a vacuum. So me writing the music, uh, what we call, uh, the book in music theater, which is the script and, um, writing the lyrics, whole thing. Um, and it was very much life turned up to 11. And after that point, I wrote some material for, um, Baz Luhrmann's adaptation of his film, Strictly Ballroom for the stage, Strictly Ballroom, the musical, and that was great to work with Baz and to work on something that was commercial and that had the resources of a commercial um, production company like Global Creatures behind it. But ultimately, it was like close but dissatisfying because I was never in the room. You know, Baz would be like, he'd send me a brief. Can you write a song for Barry Five? And I'd write a song and he'd go, eh, maybe a bit of this, a bit of that. And I would work on it and send it back. And then I would have no idea what was happening with it. Is it going well in the room? Does it sound right for the singer? all those things that are a massive part of writing a musical, which is being in the room and shaping it. I wasn't there for with Strictly Ballroom. So when that finished, I was like, man, what what am I doing? I want to write a score. I want to work with great book writers and great directors on this. And my wife, Lucy, was like, you need to just buy a ticket and go to New York. So I did and just sort of like knocked on doors and took meetings and showed my wares, which were all very Australian. I think I gave – I had a meeting with um, who is now my agent – John Bozzetti at WME, and I handed him the CD of Shane Warne, the musical, which, you know, means very little to an American. And then also a cycle of songs I wrote about Mentone, where I grew up, called Songs from the Middle, which I did with the Brodsky Quartet. Uh, So you couldn't think of anything more kind of niche within a niche. But he (laughs) saw something in it and became my agent. And um, when I heard about Beetlejuice going around, I pitched on it. Um, I kind of talked my way into that pitch. They weren't going to let me pitch because I'm like, who's this weird Australian guy with the – Horrible name, yeah. Eddie Perfect. (laughs) Well, what a good. But but he's made a musical about a bogan cricketer. He's perfect for the job. Totally right for Beetlejuice. (laughs) They, they. I said just let me write two songs for free, and they agreed. And I wrote those two songs. Actually, I wrote three in the end, and they loved them, and they gave me the job. They'd never seen me. They'd never met me. They knew nothing about my career as a performer or my profile, anything like that. I mean, I could have had, like, you know, uh, a room full of monkeys on typewriters writing this thing for me, and they would have had no idea, but they gave me the gig, and um, and that kicked off four years of writing and development that eventually became the show. That's how I became a Broadway composer. Wow, that's incredible. Amazing. That is unbelievable. I mean, looking back, it looks like a path. Every now and then, you know, you get young people going, oh, you know, I'm interested in being a writer. How do I do that? And I've always just followed the idea. You know, what idea excites me and what do I want to do Right now? And, you know, you get a little door opens and you kind of wedge yourself in, into it and through it and you do the best you can with that opportunity no matter what it is and then, you know, it leads to the next thing. And then looking back, it looks like a path, but on the way through it's just like hack- yeah. hacking away at the vines with a machete, you know.
0: Gotcha. So what sort of kid were you at school?
1: Um, I was uh – Pretty smart, like I was a smart kid, like I worked really hard. I really loved.
0: I've looked at wiki ducks of the school, is that correct? <laughs> yeah. The-
1: <laughs> yeah, and I didn't even do maths. <laughs> uh- I'm the son of two um, high school teachers. One, my mother is, was the art coordinator of Star at the Sea College and my father taught sort of humanities, you know, history, politics, RE, English, literature, and those were the subjects that I really gravitated towards. I love books, I love reading, and I had some great teachers. So I pursued those subjects and I did really well in them, even though I think at the time they were like, don't do those subjects. You need to do things like, you know, maths and sciences because they are scaled up and humanities are scaled down. I even did art. I did did visual art as a subject. So um, I did – I was very kind of like on the arty Party kind of humanities. Right. But
0: because you did so well at school, was there – Pressure from places to push you towards, you know, medicine and law and those other <laughs> traditional sort of areas for the brainy guys?
1: Well, weirdly, my parents never never pushed me to do anything in particular. They knew that I wanted to be a visual artist and they were very supportive of that. You know, I, I, uh, I got those marks and, and, yeah, for a second I was like, maybe I should study law and I'm like, I am so not interested in law. I want to be a visual artist. And I remember, you know, we had a combi van at the time and, you know, my mum and dad helped me load up the combi van with all my artwork. I had some large canvases and, and we were like, let's take it all in. And we dragged it all into my interview at RMIT. And I, um, the only kind of course they had that appealed to me at that point was printmaking, which is closest to what I liked, which was drawing. And I did a lot of work with, you know, pastel and charcoal and stuff, but the drawing course didn't exist then. So I went and studied visual art for a year, but I found like I was very good at making images and very interested in making images and drawing from life and those things really interested me. But it became kind of apparent that my teachers wanted me to have a position, have something to say, have a view on the world and for my art to be a vehicle to express those views. And I didn't really have a view beyond just wanting to make images. And that wasn't really acceptable in art school. And I still I think it's probably even less acceptable now the idea of going to art school to study actually how to paint or how to draw or how to get proportions right or to get anatomy right is actually quite foreign in art school now. It's very conceptual or sort of like a post-abstraction um, world. And, you know, you can't go in there going, you know, I want to learn chiaroscuro or, or camera obscure. Or I want to be able to do incredible portraits, you know, that sort of, felt very outdated in 1996 and it's even more so now. I mean, you know, you're supposed to be doing installation and performance and, you know, it's very theoretical and, um, you know, that sort of wasn't what interested me and it wasn't until I found songwriting that I was like, ah, this is where I have something to say and I know how I want to say it Um, and this is the kind of art form I think I can throw myself into and wrestle with until the day that I die, you know.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Was there a point with the songwriting and the, and the musicals, was there an epiphany of like, oh, my God, I'm meant to write, you know, musicals or how did that go from, oh, yeah, I can play an instrument and I like music and I can write a few songs to, oh, my God, I'm going to tackle probably the most challenging, you know, of the storytelling art forms?
1: Yeah, it's a piece by piece sort of uh, situation and I speak to young writers that are like, I, you know, I can write songs but I don't know about writing a whole musical It feels like, you know, it's like anything, you know, how do you eat an elephant? You know, it's a bite at a time. And what people sort of often overlook is that, you know, I I spent four years writing Beetlejuice and there are 23 songs in the score, but I have 25 other songs that we cut from the score. And there's a lot of development and you get to see it on its feet. So you're constantly just sort of adding, just throwing things into the pit constantly and patterns start to emerge. So I used to be very intimidated because, you know, my heroes like people like Stephen Sondheim, you know, his scores are so kind of intelligently structured. You can hear thematic material that arrives at the end being kind of like foreshadowed in the first act. You can hear characters' sounds sonically start to emerge with like kind of motifs that um either melodic or instrumental that really kind of like um, speak to that character. And the more you listen to those scores, you start to realise that the whole thing is, is really like a beautifully wrought. Yeah, it's yeah. A Tetris. But – maybe some people do, but I don't sit down and go, this is Carla's theme and this is Brian's theme and this is going to weave in and it's going to become this song. I just sort of like, I go, what is the scene? What is the character? What are, what are we trying to solve with this song? How is this character going to change from the beginning of the song to the end? How would they express themselves? Um, what is the temperature of the scene in, in terms of like, you know, is this character agitated? The music then needs to... Meet that is it, is it an epiphany that needs to be joyce? Is it dark? Is it you know mischievous? Is it other words going to come at you really fast? or is it something where the character is thinking very methodically and really wants their point to be laid down and made? And the music needs and the lyrics need to sort of support those ideas. And once you've got like a whole bunch of stuff in the pit, then it's like, you know what are the connections? this song's great for this character, especially when they sing, La, da, da, dee, da, da. and you're like, okay, well, through the score, you know, you might even, when someone references that character, you might find a way in the orchestration to have, da, da, dee, da, da. and it's like, there's that thought, that character emerging, and, you know, you build it that way, and polish it. So, it's not one moment. It's really just like you know. I'm trying to think of an analogy. You know, when you start surfing, for example, you know, you start on the white water and really small waves, and as your confidence grows, you build up bigger waves, and you yeah. and you keep kind of stepping it up. You know, no one gets thrown into you know 15 foot pipeline. pipeline, and 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 it's like now surf. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. That's
0: cool. That makes sense. So tell me about Broadway. When I think of you going over there to do that, two major musicals, I don't know, probably what, $20, $30 million productions each. Yeah. And you going to a place where the media scrutiny on you and the musical is going to be really intense. You're an Aussie. You've got the name Mr. Perfect. Yeah. You've written a musical about a bogan cricketer in Australia. Like, you must have balls of steel.
1: Well, it wasn't my plan to do both at once. That was that that was not something that I was sort of interested in doing just because of the workload. But those massive decisions about when you're going to go with a musical, when it's going to take a theatre, when it, when a theatre is available, they're largely out of a writer's hands. And so when King Kong and Beetlejuice had a really parallel production schedule, it was incredibly stressful. But I was also naive enough to just go, oh, fuck it, let's just, let's just do Have it. Have a crack. Whatever. Because everybody I worked with in New York was so supportive and and got along so well and so collaborative, I was a little taken aback when I foolishly poked around to find out what the response was to stuff that me just kind of as an Australian, and outsider who was completely unknown to New York audiences and and the Broadway, larger Broadway and sort of, um, I guess, theatrical media community just kind of balled into town with two shows that people might be a little bit like, Who the fuck is this guy? You know what I mean? And which is totally fair enough. So some of those responses were pretty negative because they hadn't seen my graft, basically. I'd done all yeah. of that in Australia and they were just like, this guy has done nothing.
0: Yeah, it looked like you got it too easy.
1: Yeah, whereas there are a lot of, as you you could imagine, a, a huge amount of um, theatrical composers and lyricists in New York yeah. who have been you know inside that process whether that is you know doing regional workshops doing out-of-town workshops doing um sort of symposiums and forums and classes and um having a song up at the at the Lincoln Center focus on young American composers but like, I'd done none of that no one knew anything So it did seem on the outside, even though I don't think I'm like an ostentatious person, I do have an ostentatious name and it was an ostentatious kind of reality. And I kind of have to accept that. So I just kind of like, I was just like, well, you know, I know that I didn't, there's no way of talking yourself into a $26 million musical. You have to write stuff that the people that are signing the checks have faith in. So I was like, that's what's happening. So I'm just gonna keep going. And Kong was the first to premiere, and Kong did not do well, like critically or commercially. And then Beetlejuice did sort of okay critically, but then we managed to burst out of this sort of New York bubble, which was like this show's a piece of shit. Somehow they decided that Beetlejuice was not really a piece of value, but we managed to break out of that because we got nominated for eight Tony Awards, and it gave us a chance to perform at the Tonys, and that performance and the cast album got us outside of that bubble. And we started getting audiences, huge audiences from that point on. That's awesome. Yeah.
0: And so tell me when the media, when reviews and things come out, like what's your approach? You know, I'm guessing you have to read them because that's part of the process, but do you read them?
1: How do you handle, you know, when they're savage? Starting as a solo kind of musical comedian as a way of sort of embodying my own writing, um, you're also your own producer, your own PR person, even if you have a marketing person, it's still largely up to you. When you're performing at Melbourne Comedy Festival or, as I did, went to Edinburgh Fringe, you know, your reviews are another tool to sell your show. So you get very quickly used to the idea. Everyone has a different attitude to them. But um, I got to a place where, like, I'm not going to necessarily be mortally wounded by the negative reviews. But that also means that I can't indulge in the positive reviews. For me, they're they're a tool, you know. Either you can learn something, someone uh, in a review, even if it's particularly unkind, might have something constructive. And I think you need to, you know, be able to grit your teeth and bear the sort of the personal wounding of that um, and see if there's a revelation that you can learn from, either about your writing or about the show or the structure of the show. Um, especially when correlated against other reviews, if something keeps turning up, yeah, you know, I generally think that's an aggregate of, you know, reality. Yeah. And then when they're positive, they really don't give you much except an ego stroke. But from where I come from, they were a chance to sell the show. So you're literally in Edinburgh. You're stamping, like, photocopied little bits of paper on a flyer that has, like, five stars or four stars on it, and you're handing it to people. It's literally a tool. This is a four-star show. So I got used to reading them and dealing with them and reading horrible things. And, you know, I've had a lot of bad re- <laughs> But I'm very appreciative that I have the career that I have considering I've had, like, such horrible reviews for most of my life. Um <laughs> So with America, it was harder because it's important to me to have a career there. You know, I want to be a Broadway composer and, you know, I didn't want to just kind of walk through the door and go, I'm here, I did it, yeah, and then I'm out. You know, like I want to keep writing. I want to I want to live in that world. I want to be in that sandpit and I want to play with those kids and I want to play with their toys. So it was important to me that my writing was of value and it was seen to be of value. So when we, when we opened Beetlejuice Out of Town, the Washington Post gave Beetlejuice the worst review. It was, like, hideous. And then about six days later, King Kong opened. And both critics at the New York Times did, like, this kind of thing they'd never done before where they, like, interviewed each other about how shit the show was. And, <laughs> and then a day later, the Washington Post review of King Kong came out, and that was, like, a pan. And I'd been, like, crucified by the Washington Post twice in one week, and once very badly in the New York Times. So the reviews with Kong were so bad that I just stopped reading. I was like, you know, what am I going to do? This is like that was compounded by the fact that it wasn't a happy experience creating Kong. I wasn't the muscle in that show. That is that's an expression that was coined by William Golding in a book called The Season, which is about, you know, who has the muscle, who has the power to decide what ends up on stage. And with Kong, because of the huge expense and because of the – the technicalities of a, you know, that was a hard one to move inside with the creative gears. I think we had very different ideas about what it should be. And, then, you know, a couple of really shitty things happened that had that sort of tainted the waters with that project. And so I just kind of was like, I'm just putting that in a box and it's going on the shelf and I'm not even going to think about that. And then I was, had the luxury of moving on to doing Beetlejuice on Broadway. So I'm just going to focus all of my love and attention on that. And so yeah, we got a mixed bag of reviews, but you're basically just trying to beat out the reviews and create a relationship with an audience. And that's really hard to do because in New York reviews are important. The New York Times is still really powerful and it can kill your show. But with Beetlejuice, it didn't. We beat the we kind of beat the critics. I think mean, it pissed a lot of people off. But um, you know, the, the thing about critics is they is they quite often get it wrong. And they're quite often old and You know, a lot of young composers on Broadway are dealing with a musical language that is contemporary and is interested in engaging and bringing the outside world of comedy and stand-up comedy and, you know, popular music, bringing it into the theatre and making that conversation relevant and vibrant. And I do believe people may disagree with me, but I do believe that some critics are too old to understand what that is. They've just missed that. And I do also think that a lot of people on Broadway don't listen to actual music. They just listen to cast recordings. And so they'll go, oh, you know, Jesus Christ Superstar invented rock and roll or Hamilton invented hip hop or, you know, um, get on your feet, invented Latin salsa. <laughs> or, you know what I mean? They don't kind of go, oh, yeah, I understand these musical references because of where they turned up in a Broadway score rather than yeah, I've listened to, you know, yeah, um, that- the actual source.
0: That makes sense. So tell me you have a lovely wife, Lucy, who I know, who's um, extremely talented, strategist, great advertising mind and marketing mind, PR, I don't know the rest of the background, but I've seen her on the Gruen Transfer. Yeah, yeah. And she's great. And you've got two daughters? Yeah. Yep, so you took the whole family over there. Yeah. How the hell did you get any sleep with your wife and kids in New York two musicals
1: opening a week within each other. Like, did you sleep? Um, Not a huge amount. Uh, I've told friends this story, but I'm going to, like, go on the record with this story. But um, we we lived on the Upper West Side on 76th Street, right near the park. It was an amazing location. We had a very small apartment, and we worked out sort of via our kids going on playdates and meeting parents that we had (laughs) by far the smallest and least nice apartment of anybody that we knew And to the point where we found out that one of our kitty was getting teased for being poor at one point. And it cost a lot of money to live in this apartment, but it was a walk-up, five story, walk-up co-op. And I really liked the apartment and it was fine. Uh, We had an angry lady that lived underneath us and the floor was a creaky. But I remember Lucy and I were watching TV on a rare night off and this little mouse appeared. And I was like, oh, hello. We just called the mouse Stefan and that was fine and sort of kind of came and went. But it must have gone and told its like entire family because it started to get like lots of mice, and we were like, "Where are they coming from?" So we you know went around, applied, we called the exterminator. They came and they they give you like um, you know poison. They throw poison around behind your oven mm-hmm. and all that. It's very like imprecise. Just some guy going, "Yeah, you just gotta put some poison behind your oven." I'm like, "Really?" That's what the exterminators do. He's like, "Okay, bye." And he's like wearing a boiler suit. I'm like, "You're just chucking little dishwashing tablets of poison around." Anyway, um. That didn't work. And we get onto Amazon and we're like, let's find a humane one. Because we're like vegetarians. We don't want to hurt any animals. I pick up spiders and I carry them outside. I'm like that kind of guy, right? I don't want to step on the ants. <laughs> and um, certainly don't want to be like killing mice. So we find all these humane traps and we buy these humane traps and they're like kind of expensive. Like, okay, cool. Set them up. The mice do go anywhere near them. And I speak to a New Yorker and they're like, they've worked it out. New York mice will not, no matter what you put, you know, you can put like mice cocaine in there and they won't go in there. So eventually we tried everything and then a the New Yorker was like, you got to get those glue traps. They're like pieces of paper. You peel them off, you put them on the floor, you put a little bit of food on them or you just put them near where you think they're coming out. It's horrible. They just get stuck to them. And then you have to kill, like you can't take them off. They'll, you rip their arm. It's horrible So we didn't want to do that, but we got to the point where like, we're going to the kids room and there'd be like a mouse going across my daughter's bed. And it was like, it's either us or it's them at this point, right? This is insane. So while I was in previews for Beetlejuice, I'd I'd get up at about 8am and I'd do rewrites for two hours. And at 10am, I'd go into the theatre And then we would have a meeting and then we would start re-rehearsals of things we wanted to change for that night's preview at about 12. We'd finish at about 5. There'd be a dinner break. Then we'd do the show. After the show, we would have notes as a big group, all the creatives in the back of the theatre. Then we'd break off into little smaller groups. And then I was determined that I would not leave the theatre until the director did. Because I'd had the experience of being out of the room with Kong. And I knew that if you're not in the room to advocate for your own material, then bad things can happen to your material. Everything bad that happened to a creative that I saw on Broadway was because they weren't in the room. I'm "I'm always going to be in the room. Sometimes that meant I was in the theater till 2am. I'd get home. And then of course, the kids don't want me to kill a mouse, right? But there'd be like a mouse stuck to this bit of paper. And I'd be like, oh my God, I got to, I got to kill. So at 2 a.m., I'd have to get – this is horrible. I was like, how do I kill this mouse really quick? I had to get like um, – I had this – Jolly and James, who's an amazing performer and artist and a beautiful guy, he gave me this vintage rolling pin, this massive bit of timber. So I would have to like cover them and use that to just whack them and it's soul-destroying. Then I'd put them in the bin and then I'd go to bed about 3 and I'd wake up at 8 and I'd get five hours of sleep. And I did that. Every day for the whole preview period. So while I was doing the show, I was getting like four or five hours sleep and having to murder mice every night. So that's why. (laughs) Good. That's that's what I think of New York. I think about. I just I was like the butcher of the Upper West Side.
0: (laughs) This is good good fodder for Beetlejuice. Did you use any of this in your in your songs and in the story?
1: Well, yeah, that was very much a macabre show, but it was a comedy about death. But you know, um, it's one of those things where you're like. You don't know what you're capable of until you really have to kind of do it. I mean, I didn't love doing that, but it really got to the point where this is about the health of my children, you know. One time Lucy scared a mouse that was behind the (laughs) microwave. It sounds like I was living in squalor. I think I might have been living in squalor in New York. This mouse ran off the skirting boards and jumped into Lottie's hair. She's like this mouse in her hair, freaking out. I was like, that's how I remember New York. It was absolutely insane. It was crazy. (laughs) How old are the kids? 11 and 8. And was it a good experience for them? I mean, it was an adventure. It was a real adventure and culturally very different. One of the big reasons we came home was really because of the kind of school culture. It's, you know, we never really felt like New Yorkers. Most people aren't born in Manhattan, which is kind of my experience of Australia. I'm here because this is where I come from. Mm. People go to Manhattan, they choose to go to Manhattan and they're there for a reason and there's an energy about that and that energy kind of translates to hustle and it's a big city and it's competitive and that competitiveness passes from adults down to their children and into the school system and even though there is no evidence that homework in primary school actually helps a child developmentally, which is why in Australia at our primary school, I think most primary schools in Australia, they have a no homework policy In New York, they had homework. And um, for the younger one, it was about an hour. For the older one, it could stretch into two hours. And it was a dynamic that entered into our lives that completely, I thought, was destroying uh, their childhood because it meant that school would finish and kids would want to go and play, and they couldn't. They had to go and do homework. And it was a dynamic that my eldest daughter is very conscientious and hardworking, and it meant that she was constantly stressed about meeting those demands And that stress sort of really started to kind of alter her personality. And she would just be like, I have to do this. And she would shut everything out. And I'm like, I I really believe I am where I am because I had space for imaginative play. I had space to develop an inner life up until, you know, maybe even high school. I lived in a very imaginative, almost like a fantastical space. And that doesn't last with human beings. The ability to develop through play, to live in an imaginary world, is because you have in your brain the massive amounts of connections that drop away when we start to focus in in a very kind of a much more narrow way. Now schools are better, the education system in Australia is better and now about keeping those creative problem-solving pathways open. But I could just see them shutting down in New York and I'm like, isn't this crazy? Like Broadway is just down the street. Like it t- takes 10 minutes from the Upper West Side to get into the heart of like 50th Street, Broadway. And that is a world that has billions of dollars invested in and, and generates billions of dollars. And it wouldn't exist without ideas. It wouldn't exist without creativity. None of what is happening in my kids' school in this environment is going to get those people there if they want to be there And Lissy and I were like, we don't want this for our kids. We want them to be free and to play while they can. And so, yeah, so we ran away. Yeah,
0: cool. That makes sense. Talking of kids, do you think generally it's harder for kids today than it was a couple of generations ago? Or do you think with technology and other things there's more
1: opportunities? Um, I don't know. I. I think about my childhood, and it's very hard to, you know, imaginably insert technology into it and see what it would have been like. But you know, I, we're the same, obviously. Like, you know, phones were in the house on the wall or on on a bench, and you know, I remember answering machines coming in, and that was about as kind of technological as it got. And I got my first um, mobile phone, <laughs> guys. You got yeah, got my first horse and cart. Uh, and uh, the milkman <laughs> delivered the milk. No, I got my. The internet wasn't even a thing when I was in high school. I didn't really get my head around the internet until like 2001, I don't think. That's sort of around about the time that I was like, oh, email. Yeah. You know, because social media came a lot later than that. Um, I'm glad social media wasn't around when I was a kid because it just would have added an extra pressure. But we still found ways to compare ourselves to other people, to, you know, to be presented with idealistic ideas of what say, for example, a person should look like, a man should look like, or a woman should look like, we still found ways to be influenced by that. Um, Mainstream TV was a much more focused communal thing. You know, all all eyes were on that box. You know, the media was, uh, the pool was smaller, less ways to reach you, but we were watching more of the same thing. So culturally we were being influenced by that particular outlet. So, you know, I, I, I do think it's different and I do think it's hard to regulate with my kids, you know. Um especially, you know, the online thing. So it's, it's difficult because it's changing, I think, you know. But raising kids and being a kid has always changed and I think those challenges have always been the challenge to meet a changing world and to parent in that world or to be in a kid in that world. It's a shifting shifting sands. I think it's always going to be shifting sands. Yeah,
0: gotcha. So when your kids, for instance, um, I mean it's a few years until they'll be leaving school – but based on your experience, if they were saying their final year of school now, do you think you'd be saying go to college, go and, you know, do a degree or get a qualification or that kind of thing? Or would you be saying, just get out there amongst it, get a job, develop a work ethic, find what you're good at and go for it. Like what's your feeling on those sort of two distinct approaches?
1: Well, I guess my bias is to go to university because that's the sort of environment I grew up with. That's, that was sort of the cultural expectation of my parents education and I, and I can't see anything I can't see any kind of negative really with university unless you're doing something you don't want to do what was valuable about university for me was it was uh, you know an, a chance to focus in on something specific plus to do it in a way where no one that was teaching me gave a shit about whether I was there or not and I did find that confronting and I know a lot of my schoolmates found that confronting and left because, you know, at my school, you know, you got told off if you didn't do your homework, you got called into the headmaster's office if you didn't turn up to a class or if you were late, you were accountable. People knew who you were. You were part of a community. There were expectations. There was a continuity. It felt like people cared that you were there and then you go to university and you turn up to lecture or you don't. You go to the toot or you don't. You hand in the work or you don't. It's on you you know? And I found that very confronting, but I also was like, right, I have to want this for me. I have to want this for me, or it's not going to happen. I have to find the place to motivate myself or it's not going to happen. Now, if you can find that on your own, then I guess that's okay. Because it's so weird that I ended up doing what I'm doing and I had no way of seeing that. I basically want to load my kids up with opportunities and choices. You know, what, direction is going to give them the most choices going forward. And I would hate for my kids to go, I want to do this, but I'm at a disadvantage because I don't have a degree or I can't, you know what I mean? Yeah. I'd rather they, they had a degree they never used than to find themselves going, wow, I'm five years away from this thing that I want to do because I didn't get yeah. a degree. Yeah. Yeah. I could true. be wrong, but I mean, I'm sure everyone's got a different opinion and everyone's entitled to their own opinion, <laughs> but that's my, that's my bias. Cause that's where I come from, you know? Yeah. That's cool.
0: Um, Tell me about a couple of your shows. I've seen a bunch of them over the years. The, the first time I saw you perform was in uh, Miss Anthropology. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. And it blew my mind, I've got to be honest. And that morning, you know, the self-righteous cyclist skit, that morning we were in Adelaide. We were at the Adelaide Cabaret Festival where you were performing and my wife and daughter and I, we were walking just a leisurely walk along the river. There was birds. The sun was out. It was just this idyllic setting, quiet, yeah, here we go. strolling around. <laughs> and then the next minute we just have this guy scream at us, get out of the fucking way. Like it just, we jumped 10 feet and this cyclist just flew by us by millimetres and, um, you know, we were actually quite shaken. It was just this outrageous moment anyway. We kept walking in, got to the theatre and then we saw your show and one of the main skits scenes songs in the show was the self-righteous cyclist And we just looked at each other, going, "I can't believe this." So, tell me about how that came about. Were you ever a cyclist, <laughs> and then you turned away
1: from the crowd? How did that come to be? You know, that the hard thing when you pick a target for, especially for comedy. Everyone's <laughs> like, "I'll get some rev head go, yeah, I'll kill all cyclists." And, you know, or you'll get some cyclists go, you know, this is so unfair. You know, we're all like, "It's just totally, totally fair enough." I ride a bike. I love cycling, um, but. Uh, <laughs> but this happened to me just the other day. And I think that riding your bike, I think we should all ride bikes. I lived in Amsterdam for three months and it blew my mind. I was like, this is the best people should totally ride their bikes. But in Amsterdam, you have a crappy old bike, you ride it along a bike paths, You're constantly stopping and letting other cyclists. It's very chilled out. Everybody's getting where they're going. In Australia, there's like, I live in Brunswick East. I'm riding that Park Street bike path. path, path. And I bought this terrible old bike on an auction site just when I got back. It's like a milkman bike. And I can't go, you know, more than (laughs) 5Ks an hour on it. I'm literally riding along. It was the first day of the Melbourne, New Melbourne lockdown. So it's quiet. I'm crossing Nicholson Street. Just la, 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 la. And this guy in full Lycra, you know, grey hair, he has got to be like, you know, 60s. He's like, where the fuck are you going? And I was like... It made me so irrationally angry. I'm like, fucking chill out, boomer. You know what I mean? Like, what, are you, like, <laughs> you're trying to catch up with your Peloton? Like, fuck off. Where are you going? And where are you going so far? Like, what is the rush? But there's this thing in Australia. So, and like, We're just going to rag on cyclists, and you know, you'll you get a lot of hate for this. But <laughs> they're a great cyclist, all right? They're a great cyclist. I have no problem with cyclist. I am a cyclist. I believe in it. But I'm bringing the go slow thing back because I used to get sweaty going everywhere. I'm like, this is crazy. Why am I like, why am I furiously trying to get to where I'm going in five minutes with 400 gears? I'm like, no, I'm just, I'm going to get there when I get there now. I'm just like chilled. So when there's no one around you get yelled at by a cyclist, it's because they don't want to break. They don't want to stop. They don't want to deviate. There is a sense that when you're on the bike, you are the pinnacle of human existence. You're doing what other people can't do, which is you are using your human energy to power a bike. You're completely sustainable. You're shrinking your carbon footprint on this planet. You're better than anyone that drives a car. Everybody must get out of my fucking way. That's the kind of weird attitude. I don't know where that came from. And yes, I get it. It's dangerous on the roads and car drivers are absolute dickheads with cyclists. And I'm, I'd want to be on a bike path too. But I'm like, it's a shared path. Chill the fuck out. (laughs) He (laughs) ended the rant. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. But I used my dad's cycle gear for for that show. So I was like, hey, Dad, have you got any old cycling gear you don't want to use? My dad's really into like, he's a road cyclist. he's like, yeah. And then when he saw it, he's like, I didn't know you were using it for that. (laughs) Oh, it was an incredible show. Unbelievable. Uh, Let's talk
0: about another show. Shane Warne, the musical. Yeah. I saw that, blew my mind as well. Oh, God, right. Yep, congratulations. Thanks. I'm a mad cricketer. Are you? Yep.
1: You're a batsman, a bowler, an all-rounder?
0: I was an opening batsman when, you know, in primary school. Wow. I had a very good straight bat. I was a really good defensive player. Like, they could never get me out, but I hardly ever scored any runs, so I think my career had limited potential. Yeah. But, you know, grew up in the 70s. All those guys, the chapels. Bats were heavy back then. Oh, right? they were so heavy. I had the Doug Walters model, grey Nichols bat. It was so heavy I could hardly lift it, but, you know, carried it around everywhere, very proud of it.
1: Uh, yeah, I remember picking up a bat and just being like, how are you supposed to – because I was used to playing backyard cricket with like a light little bit of balsamble. You're like yeah. smacking it around. I was like, no wonder you were like defensive. Yeah. Like, just put it in front yeah. of me and hide. Exactly. So tell me about Shane Warne the musical. Shane Warne the musical was so bizarre because while we were in rehearsals and getting ready to open in 2008 at the Athenaeum, he knew it was happening because he was trying to sell one of his books. I think it was called Shane's Century or Shane's 100. It was about his 100 favourite cricketers ranked in order. It's a very nerdy (laughs) book, isn't it? (laughs) Everything I knew about Shane and cricket I read in a book. I'm not a cricket fan. I never really played it. But I liked him, and I liked him as a character because he, you know, you, you would ask, people, what do you think of Shane Warren? Everybody had an opinion, and that's great. I love him, positive, negative, yeah. But from what I can, what I could gather by reading about him and reading heaps of interviews and stuff, he's a very friendly, positive guy, and his story is just so operatic. You know, he's got success, he's got value, he's got everything you would want except murder, really. And, um, and so I – or him dying. That would have helped. I mean, no, I don't want him to die, but it would have helped to have an ending, <laughs> but I didn't.
0: Um, Lose his finger in a, you know, motorcycle accident. You know, that never happened, did
1: it? No. No. No, yeah, none okay. of that. All right. Um, so, yeah, so it took three years to write that show, and when we were rehearsing it, he would get asked every time he did an interview about his book, are you are going to go see Shane Warne the musical? And he'd be all like – oh, bloody hell, there should be a law against this. They shouldn't be able to take your life and do it, you know. We were legaled up to the wazoo, but we didn't want, you know, def- I don't know if you've ever dealt with defamation. I've dealt with defamation lawyers all my life, and they're the most annoying people. Again, sorry, defamation lawyers, but you <laughs> are. Because no one will ever give you anything in writing or plant a flag in the sand. It's all about will you get sued or not. And so, you know, We'd had defamation lawyers look over it and go, this is fine. Because I basically what I did was I took his autobiographies, which he's written like three, I just took his version of events and I just sort of like made it as ridiculous as possible. But it was what he said happened. So I was like, you can't really argue against that, you know. And he didn't want to go and see it, but he was supposed to be playing in the Indian Premier League in Mumbai. And then the Mumbai terrorist attacks happened at the Raj Hotel. And he didn't go and I remember it was the second preview, so the second time ever we'd performed the show in front of an audience. Kevin White, the producer of Shane Warne the Musical, comes backstage and he goes, hey, you said you'd want to know this. I'm telling you, Shane Warne is in the audience tonight. I was like, I don't remember telling you I wanted to know that. But <laughs> anyway, I know it now. <laughs> so I had to do this show and the whole way through, I'm like, oh, sorry, mate. Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, like me and my undies being chased around by girls on stage. And I was like, oh, Dude. Dude, how's it going to go with this? It was the worst. But um, afterwards, Kevin's like, uh, get your gear on. Shane and his manager are waiting for you over at Il Baccaro on Flinders Lane. (laughs) They want to meet you. And I'm like, this is it. I'm going to get – I wanted to run away. I wanted to just go, no, I'm not going to that. But I was like, you spent three years writing a musical about Shane. You've read every bloody thing on his life. He's come to see it. He's going to have an opinion on it, even if you just – even if you should sit there and cop it while he tells you off for three hours, you've asked for this, haven't you? Like, you know what I mean? Like, haven't yeah. you manifest exactly this. Like, yeah. so I was like, great. I got dressed and I had my like blonde hair. I got a fake spray on tan. And I'm like, this is so weird. And I walk in <laughs> and he's sitting in a booth in the corner <laughs> with his manager. And I'm like, hi, Shane. And I sit down and he's like really quiet. And I'm like, so um, what do you think of the show? And he's like, yeah, I really liked it. I was like, I like felt about 4,000 tons of weight come off my shoulders. And he was like, yeah, I really thought you kind of captured my personality and my style and the story's really fun and really funny. And I was like, okay. He had no problems with it. And then it was great because I got to tell him why I wrote it. And. I mean, the reason I wrote it was because we come from the same place. Same area. yeah, Same area. Yeah. And I think in a lot of ways, I even though, you know, i have not as um, nowhere near the kind of level. He was this, you know, sporting super, superstar, first branded sporting superstar in Australia, I think. Yeah. Um, he was like Australia's sort of problematic Australian white Michael Jordan. Yep. And, but, you know, like he kind of fell ass backwards into finding spin bowling. Spin bowling was not cool. It was not easy, and it's, it's one of those things when when you start, um, you shit at it for a really long time. You get smacked all over the park, and it probably is a lot easier to just swap those guys out and stick with medium or full pace or swing or something. But he somehow found Terry Jenner and the Adelaide uh, AIS. Yep, that Terry Jenner had this. incredible incredible redemption story of having gone to jail for fraud and have been given a job at the AIS and sort of found a kindred spirit in Shane and nurtured him this story is unbelievable It, it is and yes he made so he made so many mistakes and yes he represents everything that makes Australians both sort of proud and embarrassed, but I do think that's kind of being Australian. I think, you know, we like our heroes sort of chipped and flawed. you we know. Larrikins. Yeah, larrikins, you know. like Lovable larrikins. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, Ned Kelly was a bush ranger for God's sake, and he's a national hero, but it's about, you know, he's anti-authoritarian. Mm-hmm. He, he wasn't squeaky clean. He didn't do things by the book. I and mean, then that's not me excusing the bad things he's done, but I also didn't think the bad things he did were really any of my business. And... The bad things he did were like if you cheat on your wife, at some point your wife is going to yell at you in a room somewhere and that was the scene that I wanted to write and I wanted to give Simone that voice because she was kind of like pretty seemingly quiet in the press. So, yeah, I I wanted to write that story and it was great to be able to tell him why I wanted to write it. And from that point on he was really on board. He came to open night. We had this plan, you know, at the end of the show we'd take a bow and then I would go, ladies and gentlemen, Shane Warne. You know, opening night's a big deal, and it's such a huge amount of work and so stressful. to the, the show, and I was like, "Oh, that's right, I've got to, I've got to bring Warnie on." And for a moment, I was like, "Is this? Was this real? Do we actually really make this deal?" Because I don't want to go here, Shane Warn, and it's like, what? So I was like, "Ladies and gentlemen, Shane Warn," and the double doors opened, and there's like the real Shane Warn. He comes out for some reason I grab his hand and we like we take a bow together and then we walk (laughs) off stage and I'm still holding his hand. I didn't let go of his hand and we went off the wrong side of the stage. So when we got off, there was no way to kind of get out of the wings at that side. And the cast had all gone off the other side. So just me and him, the wing of a dark theatrical Athenaeum theater holding hands. (laughs) That's gold. It was crazy. It was so crazy. Oh,
0: I love it. But you're absolutely right. Spin bowling. Wasn't really appreciated. It wasn't the cool thing to do, and he completely changed that. And then with the the short form of the game, twenty twenty, and the IPL, and all the rest of it, you know, spin bowlers are just such a key part of any team now. And yeah,
1: yeah. So he's a total trailblazer. The Gadding ball. I mean, that you know, that was sort of mythical and legendary. And it's just so weird for me because I, as I said, I learned all of this out of a book. But, you know, I'm really interested in, in – like as you are in, in people, no matter what it is they do, you find sort of parallels how, yeah you know, fate and – and not that I believe in fate, but like chance and luck and, um, you know, circumstance and hard work and um, opportunities come at very odd times. And he, he always said that um, – Shane's always, always saying everybody has a thing and if you're really lucky – find that thing and I was really lucky I found the thing I could do which is spin a ball and you know <laughs> like, when he was a kid he broke both of his legs and he was on like a kind of a Dickensian trolley it was like a kind of a board with wheels in the bottom and he's like maybe that's where I got my super strong shoulders and wrists I developed because I had to drag myself around on trolley with wheels like what it's like there there is myth and magic in everything, in every world. I don't care whether it's, you know, accounting or whether it's landscape, gardening or, you know, the people and their worlds and their lives and the things that happen to them are endlessly fascinating to me. And I've always been super interested in trying to find the music and the story in those things. Yeah, the key to life seems to be finding that thing, your thing. Yeah, and then just determinedly
0: going after it, isn't
1: it? Yeah, I I think, you know, there are two sort of maybe tragedies is a bit of a dramatic way of putting it, but let's just call them that. The one, one tragedy is never finding purpose, uh, never really feeling like, you know, this is how I'm going to make a contribution, you know, yeah, because Christ, who knows what it's all about. But it is about finding something and putting your life and your passion and sort of testing and measuring yourself against that thing and putting things in the pot you know, whatever that is, just the pot of humanity, finding that thing is really important and not finding anything is a tragedy. The other thing is like finding what it is and not being able to do it. I know what that felt like when, you know, I was like despairing, thinking I'm never going to be able to write a musical. No one's ever going to give me a score. I'm never going to be in the room. I'm never going to be a Broadway composer. And, you know, when you're tired and things are going terribly in the theater or you're having a a lot of the time it's about people like having a real creative clash with someone or and you don't know how to, mm. you know, for want of a better word, win or, you know, get your idea, have your idea prevail. You know, I remember what it felt like to not be in that sandpit, And I'm like, this is, this is a lot better. This is a, this is a better problem than the not having this problem problem.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, talking of legacy, I thought of that as you were telling me about that. Do you think of leaving a legacy and is that something
1: that occurs to you or are you just kind of pushing on from project to project? Um, yeah, th- I try not to think about it too much. And in fact, you know, I've, um, I'm a l- probably a little bit to my detriment. I'm not good at bringing work from the past forward with me and, and keeping it in the mix. With All of my even when I'm in my 20s, my solo show, I'd write a solo show and I'd be like, nah, I don't want to, I don't want to do and that. Like on repeating stage. yourself, yeah, like I'm repeating myself, you know. I don't want to, I don't have any kind of like classics, you know. I just wanted to keep kind of creating and doing something new every single time, and so you know, the idea of a retrospective feels a little sort of far off, but I do think about what would happen if I just sort of like suddenly died, you know. Now, I mean, I would, I would. It would be important to me that somebody had my hard drive with all my demos on it. Cause I've got a lot of like, I'm like sitting on like a huge amount of stuff that I don't really have out there. But I think it's sort of part of, I really kind of only show a very sort of small tip of the iceberg. And most of my work is sort of just sitting around in computers and on hard drives. I don't know whether a lot of it is crap, but like it is me. It's like a, I have like, um, kind of digital sketchbooks basically filled with songs and worlds and characters and ideas and stuff. And um, I am protective of those things in so much that I think it's the full picture of what I do because I'm in a room on my own. That's what my life is. 90% of the time is it's very little amount of time where you're with a cast or you're with your co-writers where it's all very sort of lonely work. And when I was writing, I wrote, King Kong, Beetlejuice, and an MTC production called Vivid White, sort of at the same time. And I would do like a week on one and a week on another, sort of rotate them around. It was very weird, but I got into a great kind of creative groove. And it was just me in a massive room at the Collingwood Arts Precinct in a corner. And, you know, I had a Christmas party, had a staff Christmas party with just me. I was like, here we go. Congratulations, guys. Great year. Um, I went fucking crazy. Also, it was a really like um, it was a really um, bouncy sort of cathedral-sounding room, and I didn't really have much in my way of baffling. So I brought in a blanket from my home, and I sort of had some I don't know, like mic stands really high, and I would just put a blanket over my head over the mic, and sort of like, and I'd be under this blanket being Beetlejuice, and that was it was so weird. And, you know, it was next to Circus Oz, so that kids would be coming to their circus class I'd be looking in the window and there's this guy going, hey, folks, hey, you know what I mean, under this blanket. It was it's insanity. But that's been my world. So in terms of legacy, I, I don't know. I'm, I try not to think about it. Do you think about it? Do you think about legacy? Oh, uh, look,
0: no, not really. I mean, I'd like to think that people were happy that I existed and made a good <laughs> contribution and that kind of thing. I think of that. But- nah, no. Yeah. <laughs> no. Imagine that.
1: <laughs> uh. Yeah, that's the thing. You don't know, do you? You're not going to be around. Yeah, yeah. It's so weird, isn't it? Yeah.
0: Do you think you're coming back? Do you have any sense that
1: you're, you know,
0: a spiritual entity and that you'll come and do this again and you've done it before and that sort of stuff?
1: Well, well I was raised a Catholic, so my whole family were, um, you know, kind of went to church. I think we can't until my early teens and then I was like, I really respect and appreciate the, the values of Catholicism because it's really education, social justice, equity, and it's sort of anti-hypocritical. It's like, um, you know, the people that are displaying their goodness or advertising or projecting their goodness are not necessarily the good people, that, you know, the goodness exists in all sorts of places. Um, And... There are lots of concepts about, I guess, the teachings of Jesus that I really adhere to, but I don't believe in the magic and I don't believe in the church. I think that um, the church is, is broken because it is run by humans and humans are ultimately flawed even though I do respect the idea of creating community, and I do think that without a governing philosophical principle about how you um, spend your life and then creating a community around that, which a church does, there's a little bit of a hole there. So I think we uh, may be a little bit spiritually poor in that we don't have an alternative for those big churches. Um, they start to become things like, um, well, I'm I'm doing footy footy or salsa dancing or, you know, I'm going to a pub to watch a band and we're going to gather around the the ideas of that band and the music and the way it makes us feel. And I think they're all really valid things. But I do think a lot of those things (laughs) in Australia, especially revolve around alcohol. And it's like I notice now I'm 42, I'm trying to find things that I can do that don't revolve around drinking so much, whether it's just walking with a friend or whatever. Um, not that I'm, I'm very good at drinking alcohol and I love it, but I, you know, like it's uh, those sort of communities that are sort of a little bit more fragmented. Whereas, you know, I get how a church is like a collection of people, you know, including people that you really fucking hate, you know, like there are good people and bad people in any group. group. So, yeah, but in terms of spirituality, I'd say that music and music and art uh, are my kind of like spirituality. I think music is such an incredible way to communicate with, people. And there's something in music that is a kind of a binding, um, Wavelength, wavelength. And also, you know, weirdly the notion of flow has sort of like come into that word has come into my life via kind of my wife who's into getting into yoga and my friends who are like yoga instructors. And I've done a little bit of that. And there's something about the notion of flow, which I would call like being actively inside the moment. Where, you know, you can tell when you're in flow with an idea, whether it's writing a song and then, you know, the lyrical ideas and the musical ideas are kind of coming to you and you start to have a relationship with ideas and putting them out and it becomes, it has a momentum. You can feel yourself sliding towards the good stuff. And there's also like a flow, I think, in how you are inside a city or you're inside your relationships, you know. I've got a good flow with my wife. We're like laughing. We're having lots of fun. We're being generous with each other. and We're being kind to each other. And we're yeah. like, that's a flow. And then I felt in New York when I was in the flow with the city is because I walk everywhere and I walk really fast. And New York, you just love that. You know, like I'm like, yes, I like striding down the street. It's when, you know, like everybody's busy. But you're meeting lots of people and you're just kind of like, there's a busyness flow and a hustle flow in New York. We finish that and I'm going to meet you here. And then it's very compact. So it's like, I'm going to meet you here for a drink and then I'm going to go see this gig and I'm going to drop in this person and boom. That's like when you're in the flow with New York, your life is busy and full and exciting and you feel like you're at the centre of things. And when you're not, it's like, fuck this place. It's like it just takes a massive shit on you and it's like somebody's yelling at you on the street or, you know, you get run over by someone, whatever it is, you know. Yeah, you feel like you're in the driver's seat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I do, I mean, if I have a philosophy, it's really like, you know, um, I think it's really important to be kind and to respect all people of all different cultures and to be open to other people's ideas and to accept that there's no binary way of living life that, you know, we're constantly learning till the day we die and that you find something you love to do and you let it kill you. (laughs) Slowly, hopefully.
0: (laughs) Sounds like a good plan. Um, To digress, I saw the a section of the Paul Hogan bio miniseries the other day and I was watching it because I really- It a few really, years back, right? It was like- y- Yeah, but I only just saw a bit of it recently. It turned up on my feed and I'm like, oh yeah, I wanted to see that and never did. And I kind of watched a bit of it because I really wanted to like it because you know, loved Hogs and you know, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I looked at it and it, unfortunately it didn't quite work for me, but it occurred to me that you probably would have been good for, for the role. Oh, really? Did they they ever offer that to you and would you have taken it?
1: Oh, my God. Would you have accepted it? I don't – that's a really hard one. God, I haven't really loved any of those sort of biopic sort of telemovie things. Yeah. And that's not to say that they're not good or they're not really well made or really well acted and I've had lots of great friends and people I really respect and admire acting in them and doing great jobs. And I do think it's really great that we celebrate people from our own culture and we tell their stories, but I don't wanna, I'm a terrible impersonator. I was a terrible Shane Warne. I just had blonde hair, that was it. And nothing else about me was really Shane-like at all. So I'm like, I don't know, like I, um, and I have a kind of a, again, I don't know, an obsession with just sort of like being me, I guess. Maybe because I'm so limited at being anyone else. Can't do impressions. Can't. No. Can't do anything. I'm terrible.
0: <laughs> when I was telling my wife that we were going to be doing this, well, in fact, no. You, the other thing I thought of this morning, I recorded a podcast with her last week, and I asked How's her. That? Yeah, it was. It was actually pretty interesting.
1: Um, do you ha- love your husband? <laughs>
0: She did a musical with you, South Pacific. Yeah. And anyway, we weren't talking about that. I asked her, the question was, who have you worked with that, you know, blew your mind talent-wise? And literally, I kid you not, you were the first name that came up. Oh, really?
1: Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. I love working with Kate. I mean, Kate was responsible for kind of like talking me into it because I've always loved Kate and um, she was really insistent that I do it. And I was like, oh. Okay, Sabrina's telling me I should do it. I should bloody do it. And we had such a great time working together. I remember um, the first day of rehearsal, because it was with Opera Australia who produced it, one of the big differences between doing a musical and doing an opera is when you do a musical, you turn up on the day and you're like, okay, what's the script and how does the music go? And you start sort of learning the music and stuff. And with opera, you turn up and you're just supposed to know it. Like opera singers turn up knowing the score. And so we're sitting around a table and I was like, oh, we're just going to, you know, read and sing through the whole score. And I'm like, oh, my God. Because I was at the height of my, like, busy, busy period. You know, I literally turned up and I was like, what is what is South Pacific? You know, how does this go? And I'm like, oh, shit, I don't even know what I'm singing. I'm looking at the score. And I'm like, so I'm sight reading like a absolute mofo um, and freaking out because everyone else thinks – and I'm sitting next to Teddy Tahu Rhodes who – um who sings like, you know, some enchanted evening. And it's like, I cannot describe what being physically next to that sound was like. It's one of the largest and the most incredible sounds I'd ever heard come out of a human being. It was like like an ancient gum tree that had been completely hollowed out and was just full of sound. And it was just like resonating Resonating. out from him. It was unbelievable. Like at, at points where he really opened up, it was like, you know, they say if you're like too near, there's some whales have, like really powerful sonar and it can kill human beings. I was like, this is too much to be, (laughs) my whole body's (laughs) going to vibrate into atoms. Um, But I remember thinking Kate's got such a hard role. She's playing, you know, this itinerant Vietnamese, like Tonkinese in the play. Yeah. Worker Bloody Mary. And, you know, she's eccentric and strange and, you know, exotic. And I was always like, amazed by kate on the floor we had a great director bartlett sure bartlett's really like no bullshit he's just like that's terrible try that do that which i really loved but some of the other actors were like so we had a we had a great time playing on stage we saved each other a couple of times i remember um kate like forgot a line at one point which was fine and another time she saved me because I was like about to come off my entrance and I was like chatting and joking around with someone else backstage and like Rowan Witt who played like one of the CBs. I was like, oh, shit, i got to go on. And I ran through the door. It's like a, a kind of a fake sand dune at the back of the stage. But this wing wasn't just like an open wing. Normally they're open. Wing. It had like a metal frame and I slammed my head into the metal frame and it like knocked me unconscious for like a fraction. I, I remember wow. hitting the ground getting up and thinking, I've just knocked myself out. And then I staggered onto the stage and I was like, uh, <laughs> I didn't know what show I was in. I'm looking around and I'm see, <laughs> I'm like, there's Kate Sobrano with her teeth blacked out and she's got bones through her hair. There's a lot of sailors. Just breathe. You'll work out what show you're in in a second. And she looked at me and I think she could tell that <laughs> I'd done something pretty crazy. And she bought me some time. And I remember, I remember saying to her, thank you. Thank you. I was unconscious. <laughs> 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 it happened to me twice. It happened in Shane Warne as well. There was a bit at the end of a nightmare where I, at the end of the nightmare, Shane goes, no. And like it's like a kind of a primal scream. And um, I would really go for it, you know, like it was like Jesus and the lepers in Jesus Christ. He was like, Heal yourselves. And I'd uh, be like, No. And then I would collapse and I'd use so much breath that I blacked out. And when I got up, I was like, (laughs) I'm on stage. Where am I on stage? What am I doing? What show, what show is this? You were like,
0: oh my God, did I send another text? It was probably, (laughs) it was probably like
1: five seconds, six seconds. But those five seconds, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know where I am or what's going on. like, there's an audience, you're on stage look around, but I was on my own on the stage. I was like, "Wow!" and then it's amazing. Your brain, you just sort of breathe and your brain goes, this is where you are. Like when you wake up from a dream, you know, and you're like, oh, what's real and what's, you know what I mean? I've had that happen a couple of times. It's crazy. Wow.
0: Kate said you wrote a song for her during the show and she put it up on her wall in her studio for a long time. And she said, I had it up there and I was like, you know, one day I want to do a show with Eddie and it should be called Sobrano Sings Perfect and you write all the songs.
1: <laughs> it's a great idea. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, oh, mate. We should Eddie. totally do that. Yeah. There you go. You have a fan there. Oh, my God. I love Kate so much. And, you know, Kate's so, um, such an incredible energy to have. She just kind of radiates. I mean, I don't need to tell you. You married her. She just radiates sort of positivity and love and encouragement. It's just like, oh, I want to be around that. That's so great. It was a great bunch of people. It was me, Kate, Teddy, Lisa McCune. Lisa McCune. I love Lisa McCune. She's a straight up weirdo. That's why I didn't know about Lisa McCune. She's super quirky. And I was like, oh, because she was always like Lisa McCune from Blue Heelers. Like got multiple gold yeah. logo. And she's an Australia's golden girl. And you meet her and you're like, holy smoke. You're like right out there in a great way. So it was fun. She sent me to a massage place um, that she sent me to a massage place because I was complaining about this is Lisa McCune. Yeah. A sore neck. And like, we had this bit where we were waiting backstage to do Honey Bun in the second act. And I go, oh man, it was a matinee. I'm like, I'm so sore. I've got to go. She's gone, oh, I've got this great masseuse. It's just down on Burke Street. It's a Chinese place, really palatial. You we will not about to miss it. Go there. Oh yeah, cheers. And I'm like, okay. I said, I'm like, I'm really. I'm always worried about going to a masseuse and them like offering me a hand job. Basically, that's what I'm worried about. I'm like, I don't want to do because I'm like, I get really like freaked out by that sort of stuff. I just want to like massage, right? I couldn't give anything worse than getting a random hand job in a in a massage parlor. <laughs> and I like, I don't want to go. And it's really hard when you're just walking up the street. Is this a hand job place or is this not a hand job place? Right? You got to like, yeah, look at the sign. Literally, just kind of read it.
0: That conversation with your wife when you go home. Look, I didn't really want it, but you know, I didn't want to say no and embarrass
1: No, I mean, <laughs> it would be way less relaxing for me to yeah. get a hand job from a complete stranger than just to get a massage. So I'm like, I don't want to deal with that. And also, because you know, like I'm kind of like a really polite guy and I'm like, I quite, get quite shy and awkward. She goes, No, this is great. You'll love it. And I go, Cool. So between shows, I take Lisa McKean's advice and I go to this place. And I walk into the lobby, it's very grand, it's very palatial. There's signs everywhere. Do not ask for or solicit sexual whatever, you know, is it against the law and you'll be reported to the police? And I'm like, great, this is my kind of place. This is is a no hand job place if I've ever seen one. (laughs) Get in there, this woman's like, you know, what's going on? I'm like, explain, she goes, cool. And she's got this terrible cough. She's like, (laughs) and then she's like massaging me and I'm like, oh, okay, but of course too polite to say things. So I'm just like, whatever. And I'm in pains. I'm like, this is great. <laughs> After I reckon six minutes, she's like, you want hand job? And I was like, um, and I literally say, uh, no, no, actually, I'm actually really in quite a lot of pain. i am got to do a show in a couple of hours. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> thank you for the offer. Um, but, uh, do you want, no, do you want, do you want special? Do you want special? I'm like, happy ending. I'm like, what's special? She goes, do you want a hand job? And I'm like, Oh no, And I'm trying to be, I don't want to hurt her feelings. So I'm like, Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> but just the massage should be great. And she was really pissed off. She was like, <laughs> and she just gave us some of these, like just like one, like a little bit of like frustrated, <laughs> You know, like as if it was a ruin of a day. Or maybe there was like more money involved in that. Like, a, you, you, that's like a yeah, I'm sure. But this woman was like, it was like you know that film Contagion. She's like coughing in her hands. You're gonna a I'm like, you know that <laughs> this bit in Contagion where it like flashes back and there's Gwyneth Paltrow and then there's finally there's a pig and the thing and I'm like, it's gonna be like there's gonna be an outbreak. It's gonna go all the way back in time and there's gonna be like Gwyneth Paltrow and then a pig and then this woman coughing and then hand on my penis and I'm like, I don't want that. And so she did like two minutes of, and she's like, get out. And so when I got back to the theatre, I'm like, Lisa McCune, you sent me to a handjob place. And she's like, oh. Oh, that's gone. She goes, they didn't do it to me. I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> that's my Lisa McKeown handjob story. Oh, my God, mate. I don't think we can top that. That, that's, um, <laughs> that, that. that's That's probably the happy ending we've been looking for. There you go. My wife says that a happy ending is meant, she she got a massage and um and at the end of the massage the masseuse said are you thirty two and Lizzie's like that's my happy ending when they like get your age wrong by ten years younger like that's
0: mate um we'll wrap it up now but what um what are you up to what's next what's Ooh. what's what's in store
1: well um obviously as we chat now we're facing um fresh lockdown so I'm back to remote schooling the kids right which is Look, it wasn't easy the first time, but at least it was a novelty the first time. Now it's like just, uh, just digging and do it. But, you know, it's nice hanging out with the kids, so that's going to be fun. And I'm at the first stages of two different, um, excuse me, musical theatre projects. So they're both American. Uh, one of them is sort of a Christmas show, and one of them is going to be like a, a New York's a downtown sort of musical. Both sort of both comedies and both the different creative teams, and I'm really excited about them. But we're at the point where we've just got to, you know um, – pitch it to get a green light. So on one of them, that means writing two or three songs and then the book writer writes an outline or a beat sheet for the whole musical. This is how it's going to go. That'll change, but just to give an idea of like this is what it is. Yep. Um, and We have to go back to the movie studio's property it is and go, we want to do this, and they'll go, yay or nay. Um, and the other one, we're just sort of searching for our team, trying to put our team together, which is also really exciting, but it's an excruciatingly long process. Beetlejuice was like – Four years and that was just from when I came on it was going for four years before I came on board so hopefully none of these are that long but um, they're what's happening and then I'm trying to as soon as we can go back to performing in Australia I'm trying to think of a, a project like a solo show like Miss Anthropology which I haven't done in 10 years and is very scary to me but that's the that's the aim.
0: Okay cool what about a movie I'd personally love to see a movie written and directed by you Oh. A- anything in the pipeline?
1: Yeah, I want to write a movie musical. Um, so I've got a few ideas about what they might be. But, yeah, I, I like the idea of making a – I love movie musicals. It's my favourite genre of films. I mean, they're all so different. I have a lot of favourites. And I actually kind of like the idea of creating a- and writing a-, a musical for film first. Uh, I've always wanted to write for Disney, so that's something I'm still, like – out in the ether, I love to yep. write, you know, songs for them. Um, so, you know, like that's down the line. But yeah, absolutely, I love the combination of music and film. I think it's a really terrific medium.
0: Awesome, well, mate, I look forward to watching it. Cheers, and thank you so much. That was a really fun chat. Thanks for having me on. Good on you, mate. Oh, oh. yeah, oh no, that's right. Oh, we're like, do we shake? Okay, no, we better Okay, to the mass oh, elbows. Chef elbows. Look at that. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Have a great day. Cheers. You too. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Eddie. Sure, he's super talented, but what a kind and generous soul he is too. Don't forget to subscribe or follow so you never miss an episode. And ratings and reviews are good for your health. Next week's guest is Deborah Lee Finesse, a dear friend and literally a force of nature. Actor, director, human rights activist, mother and wife of Hugh Jackman. Until then, live large.
1: The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Bryn MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production.